The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. There is a difference between home and house. (laughs) We keep talking about how we are working from home. And I think that we are working with home. And when you look at how all those roles collapse at the same table, that is a working with home. It's all happening at the same time without any boundaries, any delineation. And it's like bleeding into each other in this kind of an undifferentiated way. And that is creating massive exhaustion and anxiety. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. When the opportunity arose for me to interview Esther Perel, I knew I had to get this episode to you right away. So here's a bonus episode before season four of The Anxious Achiever kicks off. I hope that this episode helps you think about and get clearer on what you want from your work life, especially as we're heading back to more normal times, whatever normal means. I think that now we need to dive deep reflect and identify our feelings before we can advocate and negotiate for what we want going forward, what we want for our careers, for our teams, our colleagues, and for our wider community. Esther Perel is a therapist, author, speaker, and creator of the groundbreaking podcast, Where Should We Begin?, in which she holds couples therapy sessions, and How's Work?, which just premiered its second season. In How's Work, Esther brings therapeutic discussions and sessions to colleagues experiencing a transition or crisis at work. We'll talk a little bit about that here. So season four of The Anxious Achiever will be with you soon, but for now, truly for now, Esther Perel. I have to start by asking you, how has this pandemic year helped you live in ambiguity? When I think of the word ambiguity for this year, um, I think my first thought goes to what does it mean to live with prolonged uncertainty? Hmm. When not only are we uncertain of where this is going, how long this will last, What will it mean for going back to work? Are we going back? Is it a new normal? Is it the old normal? But it's an uncomfortable state of enforced presentism, basically, that we are living in. The second one would be, you know, we all have a need for security and safety and stability. And we also have a need for novelty, for change and for curiosity. And that side of our human need has been completely trampled this year. We are, you know, any spontaneous encounter could lead to a spontaneous contamination. So we've had to just completely hone into the security needs and the balance has snapped off its hinge, basically. It's interesting, though, when you said enforced presentism. As someone who's always been told to stop being so anxious and live in the moment, 
I'm curious because aren't we, we're supposed to live in the moment more. What's the difference between being present in the moment and then forced presentism? Hmm. It's a beautiful question. Because when you live in the moment, as we are often invited to do, to notice, to be embodied, to be in the acute experience that is happening right then and there, that is very different of the kind of enforced presentism that is connected to a state of multiple losses Mm. of the way that we have lived and of we have conceived of normalcy. The loss of spontaneity and the sense of positive anticipation that we bring to our encounters that bring chance and surprise rather than the negative anticipation that we currently have when faced with the unknown. Loss of the boundaries between work, home, school, and more. Uh, The mute button has become the last boundary. Loss of our plans, the weddings, the trips, the birthday parties, loss of safety and trust in our leadership, loss of economic stability, loss of social connection, and loss of people just by sheer death. That sense of the inability to project ourselves that completely grounds us in a kind of domestic gravity of the moment. That's the presentism that we're talking about. That is very different from the, you know, breathe and expand yourself and ground yourself in the moment. Are you, um, you mentioned that home has changed. And I think about this a lot when I see people, colleagues, zooming from their bedrooms and personally, that that's something that I don't like to do. It feels very intimate to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what are you seeing in your patients um, and and people you're interviewing on your on your show, etc.? Is, is this affecting how they feel about their home and their own safety? What is what is all the zooming from our intimate spaces doing to us? <laughs> well, you know, on the one hand, we've never been more physically distant, but we've never been more intimate. Yeah literally by working with people in their bedrooms. And this has been the case as I see my patients in their apartments, in their small apartments, in their kitchen, at the table. And it's the same table where all their roles have collapsed into one. They are the parent, the partner, the colleague, the manager, the child of the lover, all of it, the friend, all of it in one place, in one chair at the same table. When I did the whole recording for the new season of How Is Work, every episode was recorded in the pandemic. So they were all at home in multiple parts of the world. Um, and for some, a home still meant refuge, peace, the place where I can be myself, you know, authentic, relaxed, the place where I am with my loved one, with my children. And for others, home has become a stultifying place, listless. Uh, there is a, a real need to leap out. There is a difference between home and house. Mm. <laughs> At the same time, I think we keep talking about how we are working from home. And I think that we are working with home. And when you look at how all those roles collapse at the same table, that is a working with home. It's all happening at the same time without any boundaries, any delineation, any demarcation. One sentence you're talking as the mom, one sentence you're talking as the partner, one sentence you're talking as the daughter from, the next thing you do is as a friend, the next thing you do is as the professional. And it's like bleeding into each other in this kind of an undifferentiated way. And 
that is creating massive exhaustion and anxiety. I, I call it the mush. There's actually the a mush. The mush. There's a great moment in um, in the second season of your show where the dog barks, and you say you should be listening to the dog right now, not to each other. I think. <laughs> Because it, 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 we're trying to pretend that the kids are not there, the dogs are not there, the phone is not ringing. I am with you in your home. I'm doing a house call. I am the doctor who does a house visit, basically, at this moment. And in a way, I see a lot of things about you and you about me that we would never have seen when we were in a more asepticized, maybe neutralized or professionalized, you know, ritualized setting called the office, my practice, where I used to record every episode for the first seasons. Oh, so okay. I, I, I think that that in itself is, is, a, is a phenomenal change. On the one hand, I am so close. I see every tear that streams down your face instantly. And at the other end, we never really make real eye contact. So, you know, the word intimacy sometimes stands for into me see, <laughs> which at the same time, there is more of at this moment by the proximity that is created. And at the same time, there is a certain distance that is created because sometimes I would love to have my hand just go through the screen and just reach out and I cannot do it. You know, a lot of bosses I've been talking to have said, I feel like I have new insight into my employees' whole lives. And they, mm -hmm. I find them trying to frame it. And it is part of it is positive. I can see their kids. I can see their dining room table. I can see their husbands cooking in the back. And now I understand them more. So I guess my question for you is, looking into your crystal ball, is that going to help us? communicate when we get back to the office? What's going to happen with all of this new intimacy into each other's lives? It always depends on the conversation that follows. If I, if I think about the conversations that I've had this year, the really important conversations, they have all been about pressing topics that used to be below the surface at work and have now been brought to the surface, front and center. Questions around um, what is home life really look like for you? Are you glad to come to the office? Is this actually the one place where you can be confident, creative, listened to, appreciated, or is it or, or something else? Is the reverse actually more likely? What about jealousy? What about competition? What about loyalty? What about trust? What about people knowing what goes on in your life, your birthdays, your celebrations, your losses, the death that took place, etc.? Are we going to acknowledge it or are we going to basically say we're back at work and we don't bring home and our personal lives right. to work, as has often been the, the desire here. I've always said, and I think all of how his work is created around the idea that we bring our relationship diary to work. We bring our relationship history to work. It actually influences how we collaborate, how we create, how we compete, how we ask for help. And it usually isn't really acknowledged. People keep wanting to Why? say, I want to bring my whole self to Why? work. Why? Why is that so scary it's for It's seen us? as a distraction. 
It's oh. seen as a lack of focus. It, it jibes against the concept of productivity um, because its relational skills have often been seen as soft skills mm-hmm. and soft skills usually meant feminine skills and feminine skills usually meant you may admire them in principle, but you're not necessarily going to apply them. They don't in make reality. money. They don't make money. They don't. They don't hit the bottom line. This has really shifted. You see, it, the, every employer understands that a trust and empathy are essential to leadership at this moment. Um, and that really inviting people to bring the details of their life at work the way that they have brought the details of their work at home is probably where we are going to go. It's going to, that boundary is going to be dissolved somewhat, not at the detriment of work and not at the detriment of home, hopefully, but it will become much more of an amalgamation. So it's three months from now. I'm back in my office. I'm working three days a week in the office. And it's my first big staff meeting with my big boss, what does my big boss say to let me know that it's still safe for me to be my real self, not my whole self, because that's a, car- a marketing concept, but my real self who has screaming kids, an annoying husband, and lots of stuff to do besides work for him? What does he tell me that acknowledges I'm, I'm not going to just pretend this all never happened? What was it for you this year? That was challenging. He may also say, what are some things that you learned about yourself this year? He may also say, what were the ways that work supported you the best during the challenging months this year? What were the strong points that you experienced with your team that you think we absolutely should hone in more, foster and develop further? What were the ways that self-care really took place for you or the ways that you took care of yourself, if you want, that you found particularly helpful so that we can create a resource pool and we can share with each other the multiple ways that we found to create self-care so that everybody can get more ideas. And lastly, and maybe more importantly than all, a collective trauma, a collective event, a global pandemic like this demands collective resilience, not individual resilience. And that means that you tap into the collective resources that lift all boats and reach out to the coping strategies of the group in a way that involves mass mutual reliance. In what way have you learned to rely on the people here that we need to make sure we can continue to develop? Because that degree of interdependence is what allowed us to continue to work as well as we have. Let's not lose it. The second part of my question was, okay, so my boss has checked in with me and acknowledged that I can be real. You know, the old trope that that women in, in some big, quote, big jobs would have to pretend they had nothing outside, right, especially. I'm coming back to work changed. I know that I cannot pretend that I don't have a home life, that I don't have children, etc. How do I signal to my team and my boss, I'm still here for you, I want to be promoted, I'm all in, but I am not getting my boundaries trampled on anymore. I've changed too. For that, you need a norm that changes at work. 
so that it is no longer clocked nine to five. It's no longer productivity isn't just measured by the amount of time that you're putting in. I mean, what the pandemic showed when people were home, you know, is that people organize themselves in a way where the work was done. So you're going to put a norm that is outcome driven and not just, you know, time. Who's putting the norm in place? Like who is who's making those norms? Leadership. Leadership. And that, that is slowly you're hearing it. Yeah. You know, when you begin to, to hear, when you read and you start to see a word comes out, you know, productivity needs to be redefined because then it becomes, you know, you don't have to fight for it. You know, the way you presented this is I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to defend my boundaries rather than I live in a culture that basically says the work needs to be done by Wednesday and implied is organize yourself as is best. I want to ask you about identity and coming back. One of the things I've also been hearing from people who are heading back hybrid, and I hear this from people like myself who actually love working at home, who kind of never want to go back. I'm nervous that if I'm, if everyone else is in the room, if they all go back to the office, but I choose to work from home more, I'm going to get left out. I'm going to get ignored. I won't be part of the culture. People will forget about me. I think that that is a very valid fear, first of all. There is something about everybody being at the table or going out to get a coffee for each other or meeting for lunch or staying at the door in the corridor and chatting a few minutes that that you don't have. And so um, to pretend that it is the same, no. However, remote work is not completely new. Teams that are distributed geographically is not completely new. And so there have been, and by the way, we are, many of us used to maintaining deep friendships and deep relationships with people who are in various parts of, you know, of the world and not near us physically. So the next thing becomes how, what are the things that you do? What are the rituals in place to make the people who are joining via screen connected. Hmm. Do you have meetings every few weeks in a particular place that is just about bonding and connecting and and remembering everybody and their faces and seeing the, you know the white hairs that are growing on some of them. Doesn't have to be in the office necessarily, but what are, what is the company doing to foster the relatedness between the workers? And not just on the work front itself, but on the being together, liking each other, getting to know each other, because ultimately people who like each other work better together. You know, that, that has been established a long time ago. So the difference is also if you're the only one, everybody's in the room, but you right. is different than half the people are in the room. It's not always the same people who are in the room and the other people are on screen. What do you do? Do we just open the screen and we instantly start talking about the subject? Or we take a few minutes and we chat about, you know, oh, you have the dog. Let me show you. Oh, the little baby just walked through. You know, oh, he grew. You know, he's sitting on your lap. Don't try to hide him. And and then we start the conversation. Those things then bring the people in so that it's, you know, whoever is not physically there is able to be brought in more than just in spirit, is brought in because their reality is screened on whatever the platform they're using. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I was thinking, so I, I know you, you I, I've read, I've read that you've said that um, our colleague relationships are often like our sibling relationships, but then you, you have, um, on How's Work, you have a lot of couples, right, who aren't romantic couples always, but they're founders or they're, they're owners together. And they're like in the more traditional, you know, head of household couple. Do you ever interview um, more parental and child work dyads like what how do you how do you how do you identify the familial relationship that is most at play when you when you talk to people in the workplace whether right. they're siblings parents or lovers so i've done the range you know in this new season of housework there is uh two brothers who are identical twins mm. Who have been serial entrepreneurs together, so they have also be co-founders. They find themselves at an impasse because one of them feels much more driven than the other, and then you realize that it's because the one who has been less driven has had a major secret that he had to deal with. And so while one was asking constantly, what's my next thought and my next gig? The other one was asking constantly, who am I going to be? In another season of How Is Work, we have a mother and her son and the mother brought her son into a successful real estate company. And uh, it is all about at what point is he no longer the son, you know, presented as the son who has to prove himself that he's not just there because he's the son, but because he's actually really good in what he's doing. Doing. At what point can she let him stand on his own feet and say, I'm going to do less? It's yours now to run. Um, have I taught you enough? Do you still need me? Is the most beautiful sentence she asks in that episode. Um, so I have siblings. I have partners that I'm also married in life, straight couples, same sex couples, colleagues who are on equal level to very best friends who get a job together in the same company, in the same agency, and one of them gets promoted and it becomes the breakdown of their friendship that one of them, you know, chose promotion and personal advancement in favor of the loyalty uh, to the relationship. And of course, it doesn't have to be polarized like that, but that's what it becomes between them. And then there is the manager with her direct report, and which is, the most difficult thing, I mean, as my producer, Jesse Baker, often says, she says, I never thought that people would have a harder time coming to talk about the challenges of relationships at work and more difficult than to talk about the challenges of their romantic relationships. Is that, is that really true? And it is true because people want to come and tell you about it, but they don't want to bring the person with whom they're having the conflict or the challenge with. Hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing a session with a bunch of leaders at Harvard who are, you know, planning to go back in September. And one of the, the women said to me, I don't want to squander what we've learned this year. That would mm-hmm. be a crime. That really struck me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people are sort of now resetting, right? That we're sort of looking at the summer. We may go back. How do we... 
What's your advice to someone who who wants to reset, who wants to ask the right questions, who doesn't want to just sweep everything under the rug and pretend like this never happened? What are the questions we should be asking ourselves in order to make sure we learn and move forward and don't just go back to the way things were? What are some of those things that emerged for you, that you learned this year, that stood out, that got reprioritized, mm. that you want to make sure to not lose? Mm-hmm. What are those lessons, if you want? That's the first question. For, and that's different answer for everybody. You know, what is it that stood out? What's the one thing that strengthened you, that emboldened you, that showed you what really matters, that reorganized your priorities, that threw the superfluous overboard, you know, which, what is it for you? That is in itself is a very interesting conversation to have even with your team as well. As we come back, mm-hmm. you know, and we gather here again today, what are some of the things that stood out for you this year that you say, This actually was something I had never thought about in this way. And I would like to remember that. What is it for you? Another question is to say, describe a time when you changed your mind this year. Hmm. You know, it, it, it opens up an incredible conversation because the changing of one's mind often also shows challenges to core beliefs. And from core beliefs come attitudes and behaviors. This year, we talked a lot about trust. What has it been for you to find ways to trust? What were the challenges to trust? Right. And then the last one will be risk. What were the challenges to risk and creativity? Where did you find your edge? Where did you experience creativity? Where did you remember that under confinement, freedom comes from our imagination? So where did your imagination shine? What role does acknowledging trauma play? I, so we've all had different pandemics, and many of us have had person loss. Many of us have had other kinds of loss. How do you acknowledge trauma while asking those questions? You know, I said in the beginning, a long list of different kinds of losses, right? Yeah. And, I, and I would really ask, you know, loss has been a major feature of our lives this year, but it's been different kinds of losses. For some of you, it may have been the loss of the plans that you had for your weddings. For some of you, it just felt really the loss of a relationship that didn't materialize because the person stayed at another side of the border. For for some of you, it was the loss of the boundaries because you found yourself homeschooling and working and family life partnering, etc. And for some of you, it was the actual loss of family members. Mm -hmm. Before we even talk about coming back here and what we're going to do and how we're going to work, I want to acknowledge one of the most important experiences of this year, loss, loss of economic stability, loss of social connections, loss of safety. What have been the losses that you have experienced? Hmm. And then you start with yourself. You know, I think the person who asks the question is the person who should start by with the answer as well. And it's an incredible thing what people will say. It takes one person to talk. Um, you know, it's short. People, it's to the point, but it acknowledges the collective experience of grief, which for some people has been traumatic and for others has not been traumatic, but has been painful and challenging. 
tiny follow-up because I think it's important. If you have someone on your team who you know has lost someone, do you start with them and acknowledge that? You can do a few things. You can go before the meeting and say to that person, is this something that you are comfortable bringing up in our team meeting or would you rather we not touch? Mm. You may say, look, you're going to want to... And then they may say, you know, I don't want to cry in front of everybody or I don't want to distract people or I don't want to turn the attention on me, etc. And then you may say, I just want you to know that if you do that, if you choose, but if you do that... Often when one person talks about one kind of loss, he or she or they are talking for a lot of other people. It's a, In a group, one person often expresses the reality of many. Hmm. And so you may suddenly find out that there were others who also lost people and we don't even know about them. So that's one way. You go directly to the person in advance. Sometimes it depends on the size of the team and how much you know everybody. And you may say, I know that some of you have actually had direct death and losses of that sort in your family. I want to acknowledge them. If anyone wants to say something about that, it's not the only moment, but this is an invitation so that you don't feel like you have to choke your tears and hold it all back. And then you start to look at a little square, you know, in Zoom, it's a little squares. In reality, you look at a quiver on the cheeks and on the chin, and then you say, so-and-so, I know, I see you. Would you like to say something? Or do you want a hand on your shoulder? Mm. Um, or do you just want to... You know, I just want to acknowledge you. I see the quiver and I just want to not let this go by as if nothing is happening. I just want to acknowledge you. So these things, you know, and then when you say, I just want to acknowledge you, then you look at the response on the face and either the face says, I'm ready for more. I do want to say something. Just give me a minute. Or the face says, thank you. I'm glad you know that I know, but I don't need anything else at this moment. And then you move on to other people. Mm-hmm. Or you wait to see if the group brings in its collective coping resources. And that means that one person says to them, I really felt for you. I know how close you were to your dog, to your grandmother, to your father, to your brother, you know, to your husband, to your boyfriend, whoever it was, you know, or I know what it must have been like for you to go back to the hospital every day or to the, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. a, it, basically what you want is not to be the facilitator who says everything. A good group, you distribute these skills or they are distributed, but the group safety makes it so that people can bring out their strengths, their talents, their skills to create the collective resilience for all. And then you go to work. <laughs> and it's not like you spend your whole day in group therapy. Right, right, right. But you say, you know, we don't leave all our relationships and all our lives at the door when we come into the office. We bring it with us and we have adult, mature and adaptive ways to acknowledge that, especially at a time like this. And if you want to talk about retention, this is directly related to retention, a place where people care about me a place where people acknowledge my life, a place where people understand what me, my family, my community have gone through this year. I want to thank you so much for your time and for your work. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a beautiful, there are many, many good, very beautiful questions you asked. That's it for today's special episode. Thanks to my producer, Mary Dew, and the HBR team. If you like our music, it's by Signal Sounds NYC. And if you have an idea or you want to ask me a question, tweet me at MoraAM, or you can send me a message on LinkedIn. From HBR Presents, this is The Anxious Achiever, and I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy. <laughs>